Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Greetings and salutations to all of the listeners. It's a pleasure to be back with you. And shock of all shocks, today we are going to have an episode that does not relate to baptism. I know that is quite surprising for many of you. Actually, I've been rather thankful for those of you who have reached out and told me that you've enjoyed listening to the baptism series. Sometimes I always wonder, am I going into too much depth here? Am I uh, burdening people beyond what they wish to bear? But it's encouraging to hear that some people really enjoyed that. And those of you who didn't enjoy it, that's fine. We're moving on to something else now. So today what we're actually going to talk about is theology and government, so how those relate. Now, I've been wanting to write some blog posts and do some podcasts on the issue of the Christian and government. It's been on my to-do list for a while now, but because of everything that happened with regard to government mandates with masking and everything like that, I wanted to try to practice some Christian prudence in in waiting and not trying to talk about something while it was a hot button issue, but try to let the emotions be removed out of the issues and have a helpful, fruitful dialogue. The problem, of course, is that uh, the emotions never really died down and the government intervention into various aspects of our life has never decreased. It only shows in signs of increasing. And so I think the wait is pretty much over. As Christians, we need to be thinking about these things, and there's not really going to be a optimum time to do that. Uh, and that's the case in church history. In many, in many cases, we are forced to think about things as Christians. Biblically, we're forced to evaluate things because we find ourselves in those situations. And so I think it is helpful and fruitful for us to talk about the government and how the Bible talks about the government, what our obligation is as citizens to respect and to submit to that authority. I think that that's really helpful to think through and talk through. And so we're going to do that. Part of the motivation for this podcast as well was that I had the opportunity to talk to a men's group at our church on this issue. And so in reading and thinking through how I wanted to present the material, a lot of that will be recycled in this podcast in a, in a little different form, obviously. But I, I had motivation and a foundation in doing that for the church group. And I know some of those fine gentlemen listen to this podcast as they've told me, so I appreciate uh, that fact. And I'm going to try to make it a little different so it's not completely rehashing the same material. But I do think foundationally that's where we need to start on this issue, is when we try to approach this, this big mammoth topic of how do we think about the government from a biblical worldview, we can't talk about every in and out of this issue, uh, just in one episode, that is. There are entire books that deal with, with these issues, but we do want a foundation for how we can actually address some of the specifics. So I'm going to try to lay that foundation. We are going to talk a little bit about the specifics of, of how we might think through those issues, but the foundation is essential. If we don't have a, the right foundation, then we're 
pretty much out to lunch and we can't solve these issues. So when we go through this, we have to start where the Bible starts in Genesis 1. You know, anybody who listens to me, takes any classes, uh, they often, my students tease me because my classes turn into Genesis classes, no matter what classes they are oftentimes. And that's because the foundation is really laid in Genesis. And in order to understand what comes later, you really have to understand Genesis. And so right away from the very beginning, uh, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is, isn't, isn't just something that you read past in order to get to something good. That is an essential starting point for the biblical storyline. The point is that God was the only being in existence at the beginning. He is the only one who had self, uh, authority to act. He's the only one who has ever existed in the history of history, if you want to say it that way, who has had uh, complete, um, they, they call it a seity, self-existence. And so when God, as the self-existent authority, decides to create, he does it out of his own sovereignty, out of his own good intention and plan. So God is the creator. That's a foundational starting point because as creator, he has the authority to dictate how he wishes his creation to function. Now, just as a side note too, Colossians 1 is very important here because it's not just that God is the creator, but the triune creation is also involved here. Colossians 1.16 says that through Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So, of course, Christ uh, is involved in that process. We believe in the triune nature of God. And so his authority as creator, sustainer of all things is integral to a proper understanding of government and authority. This is important because as Abraham Kuyper, who we will return to at a future time here, uh, he was actually prime minister of the Netherlands between 1901 and 1904. He was a very famous Dutch theologian. One of his famous quotes on this issue of God's sovereignty and authority is, quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. And that was a quote from the 1880 inaugural lecture for the Free University of Amsterdam. Now, what Kuiper's pointing out there and what Christian theologians have held on to for many, many centuries uh, is that Christ isn't just saying, okay, I'm going to create the world and then good luck. You guys can organize it however you want, do however you want. No, the point is that uh, Christ is Lord over all creation, not just over the church or not just over Christians. Christ is Lord over all and they all must submit to his authority. That is, that is the creational mandate, if you will. Now, as an important follow-up to that important foundational element of God and Christ as creator and completely sovereign, we understand that God has delegated as the ultimate authority, he has delegated human authority. And so this would be the second point here. And of course, this, there's a variety of ways that we can, we can actually prove this, that God delegates authority. One of the ones that I think is not talked about too often is just the very idea of the image of God. What does it be, what does it 
mean to be made in the image of God? Well, one of the things that I um, argue from Genesis 1 again is that the the verse there in Genesis one twenty six where it says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, etc. That grammatical construction points to the fact that the image of God is is bestowed upon mankind, bestowed upon humanity for the purpose of exercising dominion. So we would call that grammatical construction a purpose construction. So in other words, the image of God is given to humanity so that humanity might rule. In other words, what we're talking about here is a functional representation. So man is made in God's image so that he rules on God's behalf as God's representative. The term that theologians often use is man rules as God's vice regent. So we think about this even from the very outset of creation. God has given man a subsidiary authority in order to rule on his behalf like God. In other words, you are to rule as mankind uh, the way that God would rule. And so this is a very important starting point. But we also see as the revelation expands and we have progressive revelation, we we even see it revealed in how God reveals himself through the law. So in the Ten Commandments, for example, you have the one to four commandments dealing with God's relationship with man. And then you have the fifth commandment providing a bridge to six through ten, which is God's relationship uh, or I should say man's relationship with humanity itself. You shall not steal, shall not commit adultery, shall not murder. Those kinds of commandments uh, relate to God's mandate for human-to-human relationship. But the fifth commandment is is a bit of a bridge because God as the authority governing relationship between God and man and man with man, God delegates authority to the family unit where you have uh, honor your father and mother this is you know, kind of an odd commandment if you think about the importance, unless you understand that what God's doing is he's saying, listen, I also am giving delegated authority to the parental units within uh, family structure that's designed by God, and so that authority needs to be recognized. Now, we also have explicit statements in Scripture where God says he's the one who gives authority. For example, Romans 13.1 Paul writes, there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. We'll visit that passage in just a moment. Daniel 4.17 also talks about, and in the context there in Daniel 4, it's important to recognize, basically, Daniel is is telling Nebuchadnezzar what's going to happen with him, why he's going to be humbled and brought low. And the whole purpose of that, Daniel says in verse 17, is that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowly list of men. So in other words, in Daniel 4.17, Daniel saying, listen, there needs to be no shred of doubt that God is the authority over human authorities, and he gives the kingdom to whoever he wants. So just surveying this brief, brief biblical data, the two main points that we come away with is that God is the creator, and as such, he's the lawgiver. He's the absolute authority. All authorities are delegated by him. So that's the second point, then, is that delegated authority are instituted by God, and they are not 
autonomous. In other words, they don't have, they don't get to decide how they, how they want to rule. They are expected by God to rule in a righteous way, in a, in a way that God himself has instituted. And so those two points go hand in hand. God is the ultimate authority. He expects creation to be obedient to his, his precepts and law. And he has delegated authorities within that creation to act a certain way. Now, if we continue to survey scripture, there are three primary authorities that are found in scripture, three primary delegations of authorities. There may be others, but these are the most obvious. And for our purposes, they'll be sufficient to think through. So on the one hand, you have the most foundational of authorities, and that's the family unit, right? So you have uh, very clearly Genesis 2, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, just spelling out the family structure, how the husband is the head and authority of the wife, the parents are the authorities of their children. This is just very clear in Scripture, clearly depicted. It's also very clearly pre-fall. So it's not as if sin is is somehow contributing to this authority structure. The authority structure was instituted prior to the fall. It's just that the fall has complicated and made it all mixed up because of the complications of sin. Now, you also have the church being instituted as an authority in Scripture. You have elders being in authority over their members. Ephesians 4 is an example of that. Hebrews 13 verse 7 and 17, which is actually interesting. We'll talk more about that. Uh, but Hebrews 13, very clear that members in a church are to be obedient to their leaders. That's an important aspect. And then you also have government being uh, also known as the state. Uh, in many writings, it's referred to as state. Uh, and so Romans 13 very, very clear on that. 1 to 7, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, all talk about how God has instituted the state, the, the uh, governing authorities uh, in order to help administrate God's plan for his creation. So what that means from a, if, if we were to summarize all this, is that God ultimately determines and defines the authority. And so he talks about individual responsibilities, what an individual is is capable and, and expected to do. He talks about the family, what the family life should look like. He talks about what the church should look like and how those authorities should function. And God also talks about the state and how the state or the government ought to function. Okay. Now, as a concluding point to just this summary introduction, it should be noted that all authorities and this is a sobering reality, especially for those who have families or who are in positions of authority. All authority, according to scripture, whether it be family, church, and state, are accountable to God for their actions. Now, you, we could prove this in many ways, but I'll just throw out a couple here. Uh, for the prophetic literature in the Old Testament, it's actually revealing when you're looking for this, how often the prophets call out against the rulers of other nations for their indiscretions, for their sins. Uh, you just go through Isaiah 13, Ezekiel 25, Daniel 4. Those are just a few. But you see all of these prophets calling to the the pagan, non-Yahweh-worshipping non nations and saying, you are accountable for your sins. You are accountable for doing what you ought not to do. You're oppressing the poor. You are doing things that you ought not to. And so... I think sometimes we are wrongly inclined to think that, well, other nations 
are not Christian, so they're not bound by the same standard or whatever. But that's not true. Other nations are bound by the same standard. All governmental authorities are are bound by the standard of what they ought to be doing. Similarly, Hebrews 13, 17, we have the statement, obey your leaders and submit to them. And the reason is given by the author of Hebrews that they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So again, the implication there in Hebrews 13 is that those who are your leaders are going to give an account for how they lead. And so we, we know that's the case as well with regard to husbands and, and parents. And this is, this is an important uh, aspect of understanding the responsibility of authority and leadership. So that's, that's all introductory material, but I think it's foundational. Now, when we think of fine-tuning this, I think one of the appropriate questions here to ask is what is the purpose of the government or, or why is the state instituted by God? And so there's a variety of ways that we can think about this, but I think it's, it's easiest just to go to Romans 13 for that because it's, it's one of the, if not the most lengthy passages on spelling out what the purpose of the government is. And we can't talk about this in exhaustive detail because we're just trying to give a flyby overview here. But I want to make a couple pertinent observations. So the first thing would be that government is instituted by God. We see that in verses 1 and 2 very clearly. There's no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. And then in verse 2, we also are told whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And I think the implication there would be divine judgment, although some commentators have uh, said that possibly b- both are in view. You would have uh, the, gov- the government's judgment or uh, punishment in view as well as God's, or maybe God is using the government to punish you for resisting the authority. Either way, uh, the main point is that God says the resisting authorities is not uh, not what he wants. This is, this is not what believers ought to do. Now, if we stopped right there, what Romans 13, and this is part of the issue, which we'll get into in, in a little bit, but if you just address the first two verses of Romans 13, it would seem to indicate that there is never an opportunity or occasion for Christians to resist authority or to not be subject to authorities. But as we will argue uh, further on, there are examples of Christians, plenty of examples in the biblical worldview, in the biblical narratives, where Christians do stand up against authorities. And sometimes for uh, reasons we wouldn't think maybe inherently would be the the go-to reasons for standing up against authority. But we'll talk more about that. But the point being and I'll just summarize it this way, uh, almost everybody acknowledges that these are not exhaustive clauses without exception. Everyone agrees that there are exceptions to Romans 13, 1 and 2 about being subject to governing authorities, and uh, there is a time to resist the governing authority. The only question is when. That's, that's really a defining question. So it would be, it would be foolish for somebody to say, oh, we need to submit. That's what Romans 13. I mean, nobody really believes that. You could not defend that at all from a scriptural viewpoint. The only question really as a as a good exegete here would be, well, when 
is it allowable to not sub- submit? And we'll talk more about that. Now, as Paul is defining the government's role here, I think it is helpful in verses three and four to note that he says government exists for two reasons. Okay, so government exists to punish evil and to reward good. So if we're just seeing Paul's explanation of the government here in in verse three, he says, uh, if you do good, uh, you will receive his approval. That's the end of verse three. And then in verse four, he says, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For is the for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's the end of verse four there. Now, you have to connect this with what came earlier in Romans 12, right? And if you are uh, keeping score at home, if you're following along, Romans 12 comes right before Romans 13. Okay, let's keep that in mind here. In verse 19 of Romans 12, Paul's instructing the believers and he says, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. Now, right away then we get this introduction of the government uh, and notice what verse 4 says. It says that uh, God, the government is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So that's the exact same phrase that's used in Romans 12, 19, the same wording, I should say. And so when we look at that, very clearly there's, there's a connection here. After Paul just talked about there's not a place for individual uh, vengeance because government is God's tool to execute justice. So when we think about that, uh, it's it's obviously you know it's set in the mind of Paul there that there's that connection being drawn and that's kind of how the flow of thought works. But putting that aside, very clearly in Paul's thought here, punishing evil and rewarding good are the two functions of government. Okay, so as long as punishing evil, rewarding good, that's that's what the government exists for. And if we survey the rest of Scripture, how that's how that's defined, we see very cl- very clearly principles like lex talionis. In the Old Testament law, uh, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that kind of idea. The the idea is that the punishment of evil needs to be commensurate with the crime. So in other words, uh, if you break somebody's window, you don't deserve the death penalty. Okay, the, the crime that you commit, the penalty, what is required of justice is a commensurate uh, pen- penalty or a commensurate punishment. And so when we think of that, that could involve restitution. Uh, in some cases, it could involve death because as is, as is made evident in Genesis 9, if you commit the highest crime, that is, that is taking the life of an image bearer of God, which is as close as you can get to attacking God directly by killing somebody who is his functional representative. If you kill them, then your life is also forfeit. That is the biblical uh, precept, because if you commit the highest crime, then you deserve the highest uh, penalty judicially for that crime. And so those those ideas are are evident in the biblical worldview. The, the other thing which I like to point out, which our justice system has completely uh, missed out on recently, is that punishment of evil needs to be swift. And Ecclesiastes 8.11 points that out and says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So parents know this as well. If you just say, oh, I'm going to you know, 
discipline my child uh, later on. You know, once children feel, figure out that they can get away with things and the consequences of actions don't come immediately, they act however they want. So it's <clears throat> kind of interesting that in uh, our governmental realm, we uh, haven't really figured that out. So government exists to punish evil. They also exist to reward good. You can also cross-reference 1 Peter 2, 13, 14 there where it says uh, the government and governors as sent by him are to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So those are the two uh, primary observations of Romans 13. There's a couple other ones as well. So in Romans 13, 4, we also see that uh, the government is to be God's servant for your good. Notice that modifier there. It's not just for good generically, not just for the good of the government, but your good. So the government is to be in existence for the good of the citizens. Okay, that's that's a, uh, a key component there. And then lastly, we don't want to miss the observation that governments do have the authority to collect taxes to fund their enterprises. In Romans 13, verses 6 and 7, we see that very clearly. So those four observations, the fact that uh, government is instituted by God very clearly, the, the purpose of the government is to punish evil and to reward good. That is why they exist. Okay. And then the government exists for the good of the citizens. That's the third uh, major observation. And the fourth would be that government does have the authority to collect taxes as we go through that. So I think that makes sense as you just read the passage that that works. But the questions that we have to ask at this point in defining these realities is what happens if the government defines good and evil differently than God, right? Because the text here, Paul says that 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 the government is to reward good and punish evil. But what happens if the government says as defined by scripture, what God deems as evil is good. What if the government says transgenderism is good? What if the government says homosexuality is good? Would that still be a true statement in Romans 13 then? Is the government fulfilling their duty as saying, hey, this is a good thing that you're doing. We need to support that. Well, as, as, a, as a Christian, we would have to say, no, the government is not uh, defining good correctly or defining evil. In fact, you actually have laws on the books in Canada, for example, where if you do not allow your child to receive uh, hormonal therapies and treatments to transition genders, that child can be taken away from your family then because that is a form of child abuse. So this is the governmental assertion in the Western world of what is right and what is wrong, and they are coming into conflict with what God has determined as right and wrong. So what happens if, if that's, if that's the case is, are we still obligated to submit? Do we, do we give up our children saying, well, sorry, you know, here, here we go. Also, what happens if a government seeks its own good rather than the good of its citizens? What if they pass laws on the books, uh, to take more of your money than you ought to give? What if, what if they decide we need to raise our salaries and we're going to tax you at some, some rate so that we can have more money? What, what, what happens if that's, if that's the case? Uh, also, and so th these are just questions to get the mind going, obviously, right? Because we understand, okay, is there, 
is it just submit no matter what, no matter what the government does, no matter what they define good and evil as, no matter what laws they put on the books? And here's the thing. The theological thesis for most Christians is this, that they'll say that we submit to the government unless they command us to do what God forbids or forbids us to do what God commands. So in other words, they say you must always submit to the government as a Christian unless they command, that is the government commands us to do something God specifically forbids in scripture, or the government forbids us to do something God specifically commands. Now, my my question here with regard to this, this is the major theological thesis for most Christians, I think. My uh, caveat to this or, or question here is, is this sufficient? When we look at the biblical evidence, would this thesis hold up under many of the many of the narratives that we see with Christians and and people of God operating with within the jurisdiction of other authorities? And I would say that there's there's actually quite a few passages that would challenge this criteria. For example, uh, I've collected a a sample of scriptural examples here of disobedience to government authorities. Uh, I've listened to other podcasts and read a lot of material where some of these are brought up, and I've uh, added a few that I just found from my reading and survey of scripture. Uh, one, the first one on my list would be David and Jonathan disobeying Saul in First Samuel twenty. So Saul basically uh, has it out for David, but no, and Saul has a bit of a problem. He he really goes through uh, tremendous mood swings, and David thinks Saul is trying to kill him again. And Jonathan is convinced that Saul would never do that without telling Jonathan, because normally Saul would tell Jonathan his plans. And so David and Jonathan decide that what they're going to do is they're going to come up with this with this scheme to disobey Saul, because Saul just wanted David to come to dinner. That's what Saul told him. Now, is it a sin to come to dinner? No, it's not. But David said, no, I think Saul's going to try to kill me. So this is what we're going to do. You tell Saul that I asked you to go to Bethlehem and we'll see how he takes the news. And so they skip out on the meal. Um, they lie to Saul and and they find out, obviously, that Saul is actually really upset with David and it's likely that he is trying to kill him. And that's uh, Jonathan comes back and gives David that sad news. So on the one hand, all, all that we're told, though, in the text of 1 Samuel 20 is that Saul expected David to be at the, at the, at the, at the feast there. It was expected of David, as given his rank and his role within the government, to be there uh, dining with Saul. And so that uh, was – and it's not wrong to eat with the king, right? I mean, that's, that's not a sin. And yet here you have David uh, going against that. You also have an example in Daniel 1 where you have Daniel and his friends uh, denying the king's food and wine. Now, it's interesting because in the text itself, we're not told what the food was and the wine in and of itself isn't prohibited by Old Testament law. So there, there are certain foods in Old Testament law that are prohibited for Jews. Yes, but we're not told that this was the case. In fact, uh, many of the, in fact, all of the other uh, exiled Jews, presumably, that were exiled with Daniel and his friends, ate that. Now, maybe they were just bad, uh, non-observant Jews. Maybe they just rebelled against God and decided to do that. But we're not told in the text that 
that the food itself was was unclean. Uh, that it wasn't as if the Babylonians were known for eating pigs nonstop or anything like that. So what in the world is going on? Uh, especially wine. Wine is not disallowed at all under Old Testament law. In fact, it's it's assumed that the Israelites would be would be drinking wine. So so here you have Daniel and his friends saying we don't want to eat this this diet basically. And you know why why would they resist that? Uh, precept. I mean, it it seems kind of odd. Now, it, it may be, uh, and this is where I lean, that maybe Daniel and his friends are saying are saying that some of this may be offered to idols, and so we don't want to participate in that. Uh, but then it's interesting because in uh, the New Testament, in First Corinthians eight and First Corinthians ten, Paul reminds us that an idol is nothing, and that you're you, you know you can eat food that was offered to idols. Uh, so. It's one of those things where this is this is a bit of a gray gray area, and at least from our perspective, there wouldn't really be much of a problem understanding what's going on for Daniel and his friends to eat this. But he's very clearly resisting the command of the king to do this, and so I think that's an interesting example to think through, where you have Daniel and his friends not submitting to the authorities, which of course they they do for later on in the book as well by not bowing to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. I think that's more understandable because uh, it could be seen as as an object of worship, obviously. And so that that's part of the symbolism there of worshiping. And so we could justify that. But here, it's more difficult to justify this as it's hard for us to find a verse in scripture, which is defending why Daniel and his friends are not wanting to drink this wine because it's it's allowable under Old Testament law. Uh, similarly, in the New Testament side of things, we have a lot of examples. In Matthew 2, we have the wise men, uh, and they disobey Herod's command to come back and tell them where they found this king. Now, it's, it's interesting because obviously they, don't, they can't read Herod's mind. They get some divine help. God tells them, just says, go, go a different way. So maybe somebody would argue, well, there you have God specifically telling them to go against uh, what Herod had commanded them, but really there's nothing inherent in Herod's, Herod's command that is ungodly. Herod just told them, come back, tell me where this king is because I want to go worship him. And that in and of itself wouldn't be wrong for the wise men to do, but it's it's clear as readers we understand something else is going on, but there's no indication that the wise men did until God said, you know, just go some go back a different way. There's no indication that God told them what Herod was planning to do God just made clear to them to go a different way. And so they obey or they disobey Herod's command. Uh, in Matthew 12, going further on, you have the disciples flouting Pharisee law. So they they ignore the traditional Pharisaical law. Now, again, the Pharisees are their authorities. And yet in Matthew 12, uh, they're going along, they're picking grain and eating it. And according to the traditional uh, Jewish law, Picking grain and on the Sabbath uh, with your hands and eating it, whatever was was one of the thirty nine kinds of work which was forbidden on the Sabbath. Now the governing authorities had spoken, and there was there was nothing in the law of God that had said you couldn't. Uh, you know, th there's nothing in the law of God which said that you know the Pharisees had no no jurisdiction um, or anything like that. In fact, they were viewed as being the elite of the elite for the Jews and that they were viewed as incredibly godly and, and thinking through many of these things. 
So why, in fact, I, w- I would point out that when, when Paul, uh, later on in Acts has a, has a argument with the high priest and says, you know, you whitewash wall or whatever, God's gonna, you know, deal with you. And they strike him saying, how dare you speak to our authority? And Paul says, I'm sorry, I didn't know that he was, you know, the authority. I'm sorry, I didn't know that he was the high priest. And so you think about that and, Obviously, there is a respect for the authority and the rec- recogn- recognizing the fact that this is a legitimate authority. But here in Matthew 12, you have the disciples, presumably at the with the assurance and verification of Jesus, just ignoring the Pharisaical law. Which again, this this is not uh, this is not something. For, for example, the Bible doesn't tell you you must pick. Uh, grain while you're walking through it in a field to eat. It does not say that on the, on the Sabbath. I mean, what, why did they not just say, okay, we're going to abide by the law of the land with that the Pharisees have instituted, but they didn't. They said, you know, you don't have authority here. We, we're, we're going to do what we want. And so that's an interesting, uh, interesting passage as well. Now, of course, we have the obvious examples in Acts 4 and 5, where the apostles are specifically instructed not to teach in the name of Jesus, but the disciples just blatantly disobey, saying, sorry, we're obeying God rather than men. And, of course, those passages are classic examples of how Romans 13 isn't exhaustive, because they very clearly look at the situation and say, okay, um, we need to obey God rather than man. Now, some might, I, I feel like if we were in the situation, um, or if I should say we were in the apostle situation, I know some people who would, who would say, well, maybe we just need to teach without using the name Jesus because that's what the command was. So let's go and we'll just talk about, you know, the goodness of God or whatever. But the disciples didn't even try to work with the with the command of the authorities. They said they said, "Well, we're just going to do what we've always done. We don't we don't." In essence, they said, "We don't really care what you think." You know, that's with regard to what uh, you're commanding us to do. That's just not an option. We are teaching in the name of Jesus. So that that's a pretty obvious example as well. Um, in Acts nine uh, twenty five, we're told that Paul evades arrest. So this is interesting because King Aretas is trying to arrest Paul. And Paul, uh, it, we're told in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 32 and 33, that there was an arrest warrant out for Paul and that he escaped by being let, uh, the, the believers there let him down outside the wall and he escaped. So in other words, what, what, what we're told is that there were some people who were, who were planning to kill him. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not a sin to die, right? And it's not a sin to let yourself be arrested, right? So, so Paul has an arrest warrant out for him. Uh, there's also people who are trying to kill him. And he decides instead of um, submitting to the authorities, turning himself in uh, to be arrested, Paul gets out of Dodge and just says, forget it. I'm leaving this town and I'm going to carry on God's ministry elsewhere. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, I think in many situations, uh, you know, we as Christians don't condone fleeing from authorities that are trying to arrest us, right? Of course not. But it would be simplistic to say that there's never uh never a place for that if uh Paul himself gives that gives that pattern. And we should also say that Paul himself uh allow allows himself to get arrested at times. So the situation could could be different. Now we also have Peter uh doing a jailbreak in Acts 12 
and he flees from prison. And that's not just an inconsequential act, by the way, because because he leaves prison uh, and just breaks out and goes uh, goes out. Uh, his two sentries that were tasked with guarding him are killed, put to death. So not only did Peter leave prison, but because he left prison, he had a jailbreak. He also was essentially the cause of the death of the two people who were guarding him. So consequences of, of doing that. It's Remember, it's not wrong. It's not sinful to stay in prison. And yet very clearly he left prison. Then you also have examples like Acts 16 and Acts 22 where you have Paul pressing his rights. Uh, in Acts 16, you have the the, uh, the police authorities, uh, the, the under authorities come to Paul after they had put him in, into prison uh, at Philippi and they say, they say, okay, we're going to let you let you out. Uh, and Paul says, no, you tell the higher up in authorities to come and let me out. So in other words, he doesn't obey the authorities, but he says, no, this is going to the top. You get them to come here. And so it's kind of interesting, you know, instead of just being the meek, mild, submissive uh, person saying like, okay, yes, you are the authority. I'll let you, I'll, I'll leave. No, Paul says, you know, you get the, you get the mayor, tell him to come down here and he's going to let me out himself. You know, it's kind of interesting how, how that works. And then in Acts 22, similarly, Paul's about to be whipped. And Paul says, are you sure you want to do this? Because I'm a Roman citizen, so I would not do this if I were you. And by the way, Paul ha- Paul was beat many times. He was shipwrecked. You know, he goes through his own list in 2 Corinthians about how he suffered so much. But the point here is that he's also not shy of just pressing his right, saying like, listen, I'm not going to let you as an authority do whatever you want. Like, I'm going to stand up for, for my rights in certain cases. Um, so I... I use these, and these are just a a sample survey, right? I've just gone through this list really quickly. And as you go through this list, I think it's beyond doubt that some of the examples here, you could argue about some of the details for some of them, but without question, some of these examples very clearly show that the major theological thesis that if the government forbids you to do what God commands or commands you to do what God forbids – only then are you allowed to to fight against the government or disobey against the government. I very clearly there's there's some examples here which show okay this was not against the letter of the law. The, the very clearly they could have submitted to the government if they wanted to, uh, but they didn't because the government authority was viewed as being in the wrong in this instance, and so the Christians or as in David in the Old Testament or Daniel in the Old Testament they 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 felt. Uh, justified to go against the authorities in in these instances. Now the question is uh, might be brought up, of course. Well, maybe these are maybe these characters are are wrong in doing this. Maybe this isn't uh, justifiable, uh, and maybe it's just it's not prescriptive. It's just descriptive. And in in some senses, we do need to be careful about that. Because we don't want to just say because a narrative talks about something, it is immediately applicable in our lives to to the letter. But remember, uh, the preponderance of evidence accumulates, right? As you go through this, you see Jesus himself, uh, his closest followers, uh, participating in some of these actions. And after a while, it becomes becomes a little bit... uh, it doesn't. It doesn't become as easy to just say, "Well, maybe this just happened, but it's not something we should emulate." It seems like this pattern finds itself 
over and over and over in the pages of scripture that there are certain times where a Christian can go outside the bounds of authority because the authorities themselves are in the wrong. Now, I, I say this um, because of our discussion of Romans 13, obviously. And, you know, one of the, one of the counter arguments to this would quickly be, well, if you allow such a flexible standard of saying, well, the governmental authorities don't always need to be obeyed or submitted to, if you allow that as the pattern, then pretty soon you're going to have people doing whatever they want, whenever they want. That's going to be the, uh, one of the counter arguments. But, and that's potentially true, but not actually true. Uh, and and this is this is a important theological concept here is that we are not to assess things by possibility, but we are attempting to apply scriptural uh, proof properly. So remember, we're not we're not trying to address this pragmatically, okay? And that that would be the the fault in this argument is that if somebody says, well, if as soon as you give license to ignore and disobey authorities at certain times. Uh, um, then people are just going to go to town with that and do it whenever they want. But that's talking about pragmatics. That's talking about how something might turn out. And so we have to disallow it on that grounds. But we're not to talk about things from the possibility. We're to talk about things from scriptural. And scripture uh, seems through these examples to indicate that there are times and places where authorities are don't have to be obeyed. And there are reasons for that. There, are, there, there must be some sort of foundational reason for why Christians can disobey authorities in certain junctures and not others. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And the Christian precept, as it always is, is that the Christian life is a life of, of freedom. And yet that freedom, as Paul says in Galatians 5, is not to be used as an opportunity for the flesh. So in other words, the, the tricky thing about the Christian life is that we're not bound by this, this complete exhaustive regulation saying this situation, this situation, this situation must, you must act this way and be a robot and do these things. Well, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is that you are led by the spirit and that in certain instances, certain situations, there may be a justifiable action to take when in other situations, a very similar uh, occurrence, for example, Paul's life, he, he finds it completely acceptable to be in prison and to submit himself to the authorities who have sanctioned his arrest and whatnot. While in other situations, he says, no, this isn't going to fly at this point in time. And that's not saying that that Paul's wrong in one sense or the other. But no, we understand that there there is a sense in the Christian life where we are led by the spirit and and. And when the government, government governmental authorities uh, do things that exceed their their jurisdiction, they do what is wrong. Then, as a Christian, we we are not obligated to submit to them. And so, to kind of weigh in on this, I want to I want to bring in a concept which I think can be helpful, and that's the idea of sphere sovereignty. And I think when we when we th talk about sphere sovereignty, some of you may not be familiar with this this concept, uh, but it's it's an important one that that has kind of uh, grown out of the Reformation and the discussion uh, of the reformers and those who come after them of of how to talk about competing authorities. Now, 
basically in order to frame this discussion of sphere sovereignty, we should talk about it in terms of of a question. What happens if you have authoritative disagreements? Okay, this kind of paints the picture. Who's right? So in other words, what 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 would you do if the the government, the church and the individual all disagreed about what should be done? So you thought something, your church thought something else and the government thought something else. So what would you do in those in those instances? Who is right? Now obviously the assumption in these scenarios is something that's not clearly delineated in scripture. So what if the state said something, the church said something else, and the individual said something else? Those are all uh, very much uh, described as authorities in Scripture. So which authority uh, should you follow? Yourself, the, the government, or the church? Which one would you follow? Now, there's actually different ways of answering this question throughout history. This may come as a surprise for people, but this shows why we're in a bind as Christians somewhat to in these days because we have problems in thinking through some of these issues. Now, our our current system for Christians, many Christians hold to this categorization, this hierarchy of authority by saying, well, God certainly is at the top of the authority rung. As Christians, we would claim that. Now, unbelievers will not claim that, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So, God is at the top of the chain of authority, and then government. Government is the second in the hierarchy of authority. Uh, the government has has the main authority here, then the individual, and then the family, and then the church. That would be how many people view that. Uh, that is essentially a statist or authoritarian um, viewpoint where we're, we view the government as the highest authority that God has instituted over and above the individual, over a bit above the family, over and above the church. Now, others may argue with that. Um, and that, that's where most Western cultures lean today, saying the government is the highest authority. But that's not always been the case. In fact, in the Middle Ages, the medieval time period, you often had people saying God is the highest authority, certainly. And the church is the primary uh, largest authority that God has given to humanity. So the church is number two, and then the government, and then the individual, and then the family. So in the in the medieval ages the catholic church surprisingly some people may be surprised about this they were the largest landowner in europe and that that's kind of crazy also there are examples in medieval history of the of the church having so much power and so much authority that they would excommunicate kings uh and then uh the kings uh, because the kings were excommunicated now marriages and and certain uh, church functions were not allowed. And so the people would rebel against the government saying, um, you know, this is terrible. And so the king would repent. The, he would go uh, and seek uh, uh, reconciliation with the church. So the church in many uh, instances throughout the Middle Ages actually had more authority than the state. And then, of course, during the period of the Reformation, there was actually – a bit of a problem because the church and the state were actually viewed as linked together. And so if you were to ask, you know, who has more authority, the state or the church, they were viewed as the exact same in many, uh, many instances. Now, uh, in many of the reformers, they recognized that as a problem. So they did talk about that and tried to tried to distinguish between those those entities. But the point being that it's uh, it's even though it's natural for us to view the government as the highest authority just because of our cultural circumstance, that's not always been the case. 
and that the church has been in times throughout history viewed as the highest authority. And then another hierarchy, which we don't, unless you come from a certain background, we probably don't uh, identify with as as readily, but uh, some individuals would hold to the family as the highest authority. Uh, for example, the mafia, uh, not too many listeners probably have any identification with the mafia, but uh, for the mafia, the family uh, blood is is the is the tie that binds. And so the family is the highest authority. Whatever the family wants, that's what they do. They bribe the state. They don't care about the church. Maybe they do in some instances, but the, the state is really subservient to the family in a mafia system where you have the bribes and the, the coercion by force. Like if you try to arrest us, if you try to make us do what we want, we kill your family, that kind of idea. So family can often be viewed as the primary authority in those kinds of scenarios as well. So the reason I go through that is just to show uh, because I think it's it's surprising and difficult for some people to grasp that government can be viewed as less than the primary authority. But that is actually uh, historically accurate and verifiable through these different um, scenarios. So in contrast to viewing things as a hierarchy of authorities, those would be hierarchical systems of authority – out of the Reformation, there came this this um, systematization of this idea of spheres of authority. So it, it's – in one sense, uh, if you visualize the hierarchy as being, okay, God is first, government second, individual third, etc. You go down that list. That, that would be a very hierarchical form of, of authority. This idea of sphere sovereignty and – I mentioned Abraham Kuyper at the beginning of this podcast. He was instrumental in kind of formulating and popularizing this notion. And what he described the authorities as would be spheres. So in other words, you don't have family first or government first or whatever, but you have – you could depict in your mind this idea of circles and the circles – are operating independently of one another. God, of course, is overall, and God in his goodness and creative authority is dictating how these authorities must function in their, in their roles. But within these circles themselves, they are sovereign. That's where the idea of sphere sovereignty comes in, is that uh, these, these independent circles of family, of church, of state are not to be uh, usurped by other authoritative spheres. So, for example, uh, if we think of um, just how this might uh, might work by way of example, the, the, the family unit, the sphere family, they are not to be uh, usurped. The, the role of the parents in, in raising their family, guiding their family, helping their family is not to be usurped or taken over by the state or by the church. And so we'll talk more about that in, in a moment. Now, this concept of independent uh, sphere authority, sovereignty, is, is biblical, I would, I would argue. And we could look at the previous examples that I mentioned and show how that kind of shows that there, there, there is an element of expectation that, okay, you don't have authority here. The Pharisees don't have authority to make a law about what I can and can't eat. At certain times, that's not that's not their that's not their rule of authority. And there's also some other examples that I think are helpful. Just for sake of time, I'll just reference them. In Second Chronicles 26, we have the historical recount of King Uzziah's 
uh, regal authority and his, his relatively good kingship. Uh, he was a great king overall, but, uh, one of the problems is that he tried to do too much. So he ends up usurping the authority that was given to the, the priests. And in Second Chronicles 26, uh, he grew proud of what he had accomplished and he was unfaithful to the Lord, we're told in verse 16, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Uzziah is saying, all right, I want to, I want to go and worship the Lord my way. And so he enters into the, the temple, the sphere that is governed by the religious authorities. And we're told in verse 17 that Azariah, the priest, and 80 priests stood and opposed him, saying, it is not for you to burn incense to the Lord. So now again, the king, just so we uh, refresh our ideas here, the king is viewed as the monarch of the land, like nobody tells him what to do, unless you understand that the king is also bound by law by God's institution. And so the priests themselves say, no, you are not authorized to do this. Who cares? It doesn't matter who you are. You could be, you know, King Midas, whatever. You're not, you're not touching this. You, this is not for the king. Okay. And so he does it anyway. And so God judges him and uh, makes him a leper. And he, he has to live in isolation for the rest of his days. So the point being that Uzziah tries to insert his authority into religious duties and God punishes him for that because that's not his sphere of authority. Uh, similarly, uh, in 2 Kings 1, we have kind of an interesting example here where you have Ahaziah, who's the king of Israel, and he attempts to get Elijah to come to visit him. Uh, and Ahaziah is really upset with Elijah, so he sends a group of 50 men to, to get Elijah to come. Now, again, this is an interesting example because could Elijah have gone? I mean, the people are just saying the king wants to see you. And Elijah could have said, okay, let's go. But instead, uh, in 2 Kings 1, he calls down fire and burns up the first two groups of 50 that come to come to collect him. Now, you might say, that's a little extreme, Elijah. Why couldn't you have just gone with the soldiers to, to King Ahaziah? But the point is that Elijah was demonstrate like, again, in there was nothing wrong with going to see the king, but Elijah was demonstrating the fact that I, I am a prophet of Yahweh. I operate under a different jurisdiction than the king. The king can't presume to have authority over me that way. And so the third group comes to Elijah and they they don't come with authority. They, they come on their knees and they say, please, would you consider coming with us like this? Like you, please, this is just, you know, we beg you. And so Elijah says this. Um, I don't need to be afraid of you. God tells God tells him you can go with these men, and he goes with them. And so, there there are examples in these narratives where there do seem to be distinctions between the authorities that are given to kings, the authorities which are given to the priests and the prophets, and those the king can't the king representing the state, the government, obviously cannot presume to have authority over these other spheres. Now, how would this work out if this is a biblical paradigm, this paradigm of sphere sovereignty where, where God has instituted authorities as being sovereign in their own right? What kind of implications would this, would this have? So the one implication would be that there are times where an authority would be wrong because they attempt to exercise authority outside of their jurisdiction. 
So here's an example, a government telling a church what they can and can't do. Now, that should actually be a pretty easy one uh, because uh, in reality, God himself has given churches instructions. And it, it was actually kind of interesting to see how many Christians thought through over the last two years uh, what a government can and can't tell you to do with regard to a church. For example, when the churches were banned from singing uh, and a government was saying, like, listen, churches can't sing, there were some Christians who were arguing, well, the Bible doesn't say we need to sing every time when we gather, so we can submit to the government with regard to this. And that was the argument that, that they used. However, I think it's very clear the scriptures do say Christians are to be singing. Uh, Colossians uh, 3, Ephesians 5 talks about that. So Christians are to be singing. That is that is a instruction given to the church. Uh, and so on the one hand, I think you could easily argue that the government is forbidding a church from doing what God commands. You could use that paradigm there. But in reality, I think it's it's kind of obvious that the, the government doesn't actually have the authority to to usurp the church's jurisdiction of how and how they worship and what they do in, in worshiping. Now, I should add here, because I know it's going to come up and people are going to think about this, is they say, well, well, wait a second. Like, if government can't control certain things in pandemics or, or emergencies, then, then that, that could be disastrous for civilization. Now, I would say that there are emergency exceptions where where the government could invade the spheres, the sphere authority of, of other subsidiary authorities, but they are genuine emergencies. So, for example, how would we classify emergency? That's that's the issue, right? Is that you can't the government can't unilaterally declare an emergency. They can't. They don't have that authority. Uh, it's it's not their prerogative to just say, oh, we make this an emergency. There are genuine emergencies, but they are legitimate emergencies. For example, uh, the one that many uh, theologians and cultural apologists are using with regard to this point would be the uh, World War II London bombings, for example, right? So in London, uh, you know, you have the bombings coming, the air raids uh, from the German, the German bombers. If you had a church that just said, well... Uh, we don't like the government telling us we need to keep our lights off. So we are going to gather together as an assembly of believers. We're going to light up our, our building. Well, at that point, if you function that way as a church, you are endangering the entire city because the bombers then be, are able to see a target and, you know, bomb the entire, uh, uh, part of, part of that city, um, entirely, uh, into oblivion, essentially. And so that is a genuine emergency action, which is unique. It does not belong to the government inherently. It's it's a temporary measure. It has to be. Problem with uh, government and temporary is that those two terms don't usually coincide. Uh, it, it could also be uh, an example. Think about from a sickness example. The, the example I heard uh, Joe Boot give was that if you if you knew somebody had Ebola. Uh, which is incredibly contagious and incredibly deadly. And they were just willingly spreading that around by going door to go, door to door, trying to evangelize people. Well, obviously the government at that point could intercede, take him off the streets. He's a danger to people because he's, he's knowingly infected with Ebola and he's, he's acting in, the, in these ways. So there are emergency, uh, times when a government could intercede, but 
remember that what we're talking about is emergencies with regard to that. Now, the question which we find ourselves in is the uh, you know COVID uh, pandemic and emergency, and it's very difficult to define that as an emergency uh, with regard to just the statistics that have come out now. Um, it's uh, yeah. If you if you just examine the statistics, I mean they're they're available on the CDC website. Um, it's it's very difficult to to understand uh, the government's far reaching. In fact, I, I saw something just recently about the Colorado governor just saying, you know, we're you know the pandemic's over. He which he's not a conservative, but he just said, you know, we're we're through playing this. We're we're not going to do any mask mandates or anything like that anymore. Um, so in one sense. It's interesting because the the death rate for COVID uh, victims is actually higher than it's ever been, but more people are being realistic now than ever before saying, okay, this isn't actually as bad as people said it was going to be. So in one sense, uh, how we think about this should be, should be rational. It should be uh, understanding it from a biblical viewpoint, but then we do have to take other things into consideration. Now, that's the government telling a church what they can and can't do. That should be easy. Uh, I also should add at that point, there's a rule from Al Mohler, which I really appreciated. And he his rule was that churches can't be singled out. So in other words, uh, at the very outset of the pandemic, you had places like Nevada opening up for their casinos saying, yes, you can meet, you can have full, uh, full operation, but churches can only have 50 people uh, to meet. Well, what in the world? You're, you're going to allow 500 people in a casino, but you're not going to allow more than 50 people in a church? That's ridiculous. And obviously, those kinds of rules should not be observed at all because the government has no authority to do those kinds of things. Now, what about the government telling you how to raise your kids? That's another thing, right? What if the government said that you are not allowed to spank your children? Well, do you say, well, there are other ways to discipline my kids, so I'm going to allow the government to stipulate how I how I do that because the Bible says uh, the rod, so I can use uh, that metaphorically, and I can give my kids timeouts, so that's how I'm going to going to function. Are you going to allow the government to have that authority over the family? Um, what about a church telling you how to raise your kids? Now we've been talking about the state, but talking about authority in general, is it the church's sphere of authority to mandate how you raise your kids? Now, the reason we bring up these kinds of examples is because it's not just a a government issue. The whole issue of sphere sovereignty is understanding that there are certain sovereign spheres which have self-delineated authority. So a church, for example, uh, if if I go to a church and the pastor tells me, you know, Peter, this is this. You need to give your your son five spankings for this offense, ten for this offense, and one for this offense. That is mandatory. Does he have the authority to do that? I would say no. I mean, in fact, if I had a, a pastor who tried to tell me that, uh, he and I would have an interesting conversation because you know that that's not the obligation. the The authority of the church isn't to mandate things like that. Uh, it's not to interfere with the f- now the church should be it can be and should be a place where wisdom and instruction is found to help parents understand what to do but but it's not given as a mandate saying this is how you must function um what about a church telling you what you how you need to work or where you need to work as a job uh this this actually does happen it's called being a part of a cult 
when the church leaders say, this is what you need to do, quit your job, move to this city, we will all be here together and we will commune together, right? That is called being a part of a cult. The church does not have that kind of authority to interfere on the individual sovereignty, the, the sovereignty of the family and the work to mandate what you do and not do. Church doesn't have that kind of authority. And so it goes beyond just what a government tells you you can and can't do. It also relates to how the church functions, how the individual functions, how the family functions. All these things go together. Uh, one of the humorous things, because sometimes people say, ah, that's not a real issue. Well, how about this? What if a church could tell you what you can and can't eat? Would you, you say, that's ridiculous, but it actually happens. It's called the Catholic Church, okay? On Fridays, you can't eat hamburgers. It's called Lent. We are a part of this uh, time period right now, in fact, uh, with regard to Lent. Uh, you're not allowed to eat meat on Fridays or whatever. It's a, it's a whole system. I was I spent like a couple, uh, maybe like an hour looking at like all the ins and outs of Lent uh, a couple weeks ago just because it was so fascinating with with what the church says you can and can't eat uh, in, in observance of Lent. See, it, it's it's kind of ridiculous. And, and uh, the church doesn't have that authority to do that. In fact, uh, Romans 14 talks about how this is an individual decision. Uh, the one who wishes to eat, let him eat. The one who refrains or abstains from eating um, also does that to the Lord. So in other words, it's an individual decision. The church doesn't have the authority to say this is what you must do or this is what we need to do. Uh, so it, I, I use all these examples and obviously our time stretching on now. I just want to try to be as thorough as possible in pointing out the fact that there are these inherent uh contradictions of not really a contradiction a true contradiction but conflicts between these sphere author these these sovereign spheres of authority which we ought to think about biblically if if we think about this from a biblical standpoint we should acknowledge that we that that God has delegated authority and that these spheres are sovereign and they do cross pollinate at times of course but the point is that those are exceptional those are exceptional. If, if, for example, a church found out that a, a husband was, was beating his wife or something like that, of course, the church would step in, remove that individual until the government authorities could even get involved. So, of course, there are examples of interrelationship, but those are, by very nature and definitional, exceptional. Now, last thing I'll talk about, just because we have been going for a while here, is just talking about the government in the United States and how how this works with regard to our uh, our current government, what what we're seeing today, and the reason I think we need to talk about this in this episode is because the government, as it was instituted in the United States of America, was a it. It wasn't designed to be a Christian government. It was designed to be a government from Christian people, if that makes sense. And there are lots of uh, quotes and examples uh, from individuals who who point out that that once there's an abandonment of of the theological moral foundations, there is no there's no hope. In fact, uh, in George Washington's farewell address in 1796, he said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion, and morality are indispensable supports. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect the national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle, end quote. So in essence, what he's saying is that if you don't have 
this religious principle, then the government, the, the underpinnings of the government will, will fall. And that's exactly what's happened. In the culture in which we live, we live in a nation that has abandoned the notion of God. In fact, uh, we as a nation, along with the Western secular elites, have embraced the, the motto of the human manifesto, uh, the second one in 1973, which says, no deity will save us. We must save ourselves. That, that's evident in every corner of civilization. Uh, we have rejected the notion of God, subservience to him, reliance upon him, and now we ourselves are the solution. So with the rejection of God has come the rejection of absolute morality. So also has come the abandonment of any standard for authority. And along with that is the embracing of this relative standard. So if you think through all these things, God's been rejected and so too is the absolute morality that is, that follows with that. And so we have this, this relativistic, this postmodern society, right? Post-Christian, postmodern, it's relativistic. Uh, what is good is good in the eyes of the individual or however we want to define that. And thereby the majority then can, can dictate what is good to the others. That, that's how morality is now being currently defined. Along with that, you have this embracing, this idealistic embracing of the goodness of man. That's part of the, the effect of the enlightenment, the idea that man and his reasoning is good and, and all that man contributes is, is, is positive. And so the inherent goodness of man is embraced by our culture, rejecting the biblical definition of the depravity of man. And in so doing, there's still a recognition or a problem of evil, right? So if man is good, but there is evil, what is the, what is the cause of evil? And of course, then the humanist looks to the institutions themselves as the cause of evil. So, uh, and by the way, I have quotes that, uh, that shows, I'll just give one from Maslow. He says, sick people are made by sick culture. Healthy people are made possible by a healthy culture. So in other words, the prevailing viewpoint of the humanist and the secularist today is that if people are doing the wrong thing, it's because society is set up in the wrong way. Thereby, you have the cultural Marxism at play. And so that Obviously, if you've listened to this podcast enough, you know that that shows up in the idea of racism, right? So racism is viewed as not just an individual action anymore. It's viewed as an institutional uh, embedded ideology, and we must destroy the institutions to get rid of the fact that racism exists uh, because it's institutionalized. And so we get rid of the institutions because those are the cause of evil. But this also plays out on a deeper level with regard to just the government itself. So if institutions and culture are the problem of all sorts of evil, then we need to reform those institutions and reform the culture so that evil is removed from the system. So think about it like this. This is a rather scary notion, but we're headed there uh, with regard to our society unless God intervenes. God is removed from society and if God is removed, humanity is viewed as the only solution to the problem. But the institutions and cultures that exist within humanity need to be homogenized. They need to be brought under the banner of goodness, which is now defined and determined by humanity. So the only way that humanity can affect that kind of change is by replacing God with the state. Okay, so this is the internalized 
religion of the secularist is that God has been removed and the state now becomes God. So, and let, let me just prove this to you. Um, if the state replaces God, who defines what the individual's rights are? Is it God? No. The state gets to define who the individual's rights are. And we see that playing out for our very eyes. Who gets to define not just what a family uh, gets to do, the rights of the family, but what a family is? Well, the state gets to define what a family is. And we have seen the subversion of the biblical definition of family by even the courts uh, adjudicating that a family now can be uh, two men uh, who wish to be married can get married, two women can be married uh, pretty soon. Polygamy will probably uh, fall in there or whatever. The state gets to define what marriage and family look like. The state gets to define what a church looks like, how a church can function. And the state gets to define morality and what is right and what is wrong. Therefore, what the state determines as law is right and wrong. That's the secular model for authority. It's the secular model for understanding these things. So the state very much takes the takes the place of God. By the way, this you might say, oh, you're just, you know, saying those things. You that's not what people believe. Well, <laughs> this is a quote from Hegel, okay? So this is the philosophy which gave essentially the the influence to Marx and Marx which has influenced us. Uh, this is Hegel. He says the universal is to be found in the state. The state is the divine idea as it exists on earth. We must therefore worship the state as the manifestation of the divine on earth and consider that if it is difficult to comprehend nature, it is harder to grasp the essence of the state. The state is the march of God through the world. Wow. I hope that impacts you as much as it should. Because for the secularist, for the one who rejects God, like Hegel, like Marx, like those who come after him, his disciples, they, their deity, the one to whom they look to fix everything, is the state. The state protects you from sickness and disease. The state protects you from enemies. The state protects you from poverty. The state is your savior. The state is the one who will, will help you. The state is viewed as the solution to all evils. That is the secularist God. And so that's why we see such a push today. It's not as if, uh, it's not as if Americans or Western culture woke up one day and they said, like, you know what? Let's try to make the government more powerful. Let's try to do that. No. The reason the government has become so insanely powerful over the last uh, couple decades is because God has been replaced from his, his, humanity has has failed to recognize and grapple with the fact that God is the ultimate authority. He's the ultimate sustainer. He's the one who provides. And they are looking to the idol of the state to provide for them. The state is going to take care of me. The state will give me medicine. The state will give me uh, money. The state will give me food. And so it's it's really an anti-biblical, anti-God presupposition at its core where the state replaces God. Now, what does this look like in a totalitarian sense? Totalitarian meaning that the government takes a totality of authority and has absolute authority. Well, if the state is in charge of education, as we have allowed that to take place largely in Western culture, you have, you have radical secularization taught by the state schools. You have the imposition of LGBTQ curriculum. You have 
little little seven year old Sally, and she has to read books in school about how uh, how Freddie has two mommies. Those those are the books that they're reading in school now. In fact, I was just talking to uh, a young lady recently. Uh, she was at a community college. She was going through her English composition class, and her main assignment in the English composition class was to write an essay about the goodness of transgender surgery. Well, that really belongs in an English class, doesn't it? But that's that's the education system in which we in which we uh, belong. Is education has been largely influenced by the state, with the state giving money to these educational institutions as long as they toe the line. And so, this is this is problematic. You also have welfare, and because the government has adopted these massive welfare programs, you now have radical dependency on the state wel- welfare. So much so that you have certain People, uh, young ladies who have who have kids out of out of wedlock, for example, they are actually financially incentivized to avoid marrying and and get a husband because they get more money from the state than they would if they were married. Well, thank you, government, for making a problem with the family. Speaking of the family, uh, if, if the government. Uh, is is usur- usurping authority over the family? You can obviously have if the if the state has the authority to define marriage, then obviously why is it one man one woman uh, in monogamy? Why isn't it uh, homosexual marriage? We could also have bans on certain kinds of family discipline. We can have the seizure of children if the family is not instructing them or raising them the right way. All these things uh, take place when when the government rises in authority in these areas. Or finally, we could go through a lot of these, but just for sake of summation here, health and medicine. Well, this is, this is a big deal. A lot of people are all about socialized medicine and looking, looking toward uh, just the benefits of what it, what it looks like if you have a state-run healthcare, a government-run healthcare. But then what you have is you have state-funded abortions, state-funded euthanasia, uh, you have state-funded sex change surgery. Now the state is is pushing its agenda and, and able to uh, implement these ideas. On top of all that, you also have the denial of care if you are not found worthy. And that how, how are you defined as worthy? Well, the state gets to define who gets care and who doesn't. You say, well, that would never happen. Well, it's already happening and it happens um, in places where you have socialized medicine. For example, some of the listeners may know the name Alfie Evans. Alfie Evans was a a British subject and he was uh, born with tremendous health problems. And the British courts ruled that he was unworthy of receiving prolonged medical attention. And so this this little child, little Alfie Evans, you can there were many many articles about him. You can just uh, Google him and find uh, find out you know the sad details. He was actually granted a emergency Italian citizenship in an attempt to bring him to Italy to to try these medical treatments. But the British hospital system wouldn't even let him leave the hospital. They they. Uh, ushered him into death, uh, not even giving him a chance at life because that was deemed as being better for him long run. Think of, think of that. That should, that should scare you where if you have a nationalized healthcare, you basically have the state saying we get to determine who lives, who dies, who is, who is worthy of these treatments and not. 
And now I'm not saying that Alfie Evans was, would even have lived if he would have gotten that treatment. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying theoretically there's something incredibly wrong if the state gets to determine who even gets to try to live. That's, that's the issue, right? And so, but that's the problem is when governments are given a totalitarian foothold, they are given this uh, authoritarian uh, stranglehold on society. They get this uh, ability to interfere in the spheres of other authorities, whether it be the family, whether it be uh, the church, all these, all these different institutions. And so as Christians, we ought to be wise to recognize that, that we, it's not just a neutral playing field. It's government is God's gift to humanity. It is, it is a good thing, but like everything, sin corrupts. And so as Christians, we ought to be aware of this. We ought to be fighting against this, uh, this reality that, that governments are going to try to Im- improve and, and increase their authority because especially in a secularized society, that is the ultimate good is to gain that authority so that we can control the evil in our society. And in one sense, it's a noble aspiration, but we know theologically it will never work because human beings are the problem. Sin resides in the hearts of us. It does not reside in institutions. And so that is so essential to recognize as Christians. You know, one of, while, while I was studying these issues and working through some of these, I, I uh, came across a story which was mind-boggling. In, the, in 1980 or around that that point, R.C. Sproul, who obviously was a champion of the Christian faith for, for many years, had the opportunity to sit in a taxi cab uh, in St. Louis with the renowned Francis Schaeffer, who also, you know, just an amazing Christian mind. I've just been reading a couple books by him recently and just really impressed. Uh, and so R.C. Sproul wanted to seize the opportunity. And so he, he looked at uh, Dr. Schaefer, Francis Schaefer, and said, Dr. Schaefer, what is your biggest concern for the future of the church in America? This was in 1980 that Sproul asked Schaefer this question. And without even a hesitation, Dr. Schaefer turned to Sproul and said just one word, statism, statism. Interesting that already Francis Schaefer saw that the church in America was going to struggle with the government, that the government was going to uh, be unchecked. It was going to be allowed to invade these, these sovereign spheres of authority and grow into a, just an incredible mammoth creature that had all of this power and authority, which was, which was not good. And there would be tremendous complications of this. Now, I'll conclude with this. Man, I've really gone a long time on this one, but you can tell obviously there's a lot that you could talk about with regard to these issues. But let, let me just conclude by giving you an idea of the the kind of evil that totalitarian governments can can implement. And what I mean by this is that when governments are allowed to continue to grasp more more power, more authority, more unchecked power, more authority, whenever they invade, they 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 have this pervasive authority and influence. What what happens? Well, let's let's give a uh, a comparison here. So in 2020, according to the World Health Organization, there were 1.8 million deaths from COVID-19. And, you know, I know some people would say, you know, those numbers are overcounted. Some people say they're undercounted. Let's just take the World Health Organization as as a whole here. Uh, 1.8 million deaths from COVID in 2020, okay? So a full year of COVID, uh, 1.8 million deaths. 
Well, here's an interesting thing. For the sake of comparison, uh, in a provocatively titled book by R.J. Rummel, which is entitled Death by Government, I think it was written in 1994, if I remember correctly, Death by Government, he he uh, analyzes the years between 1900 and 1987. So over 87 years, totalitarian, totalitarian governments killed 170 million men, women, and children. That is an average of 1.9 million people per year on average. And th- these are not just pleasant deaths. These are, uh, this is a quote from his book, uh, shot, beaten, tortured, knifed, burned, starved, frozen, crushed, or worked to death, buried alive, drowned, hung, bombed, or killed in any other myriad of ways governments have inflicted death on unarmed, helpless citizens and foreigners. I mean, that, that's pretty That's pretty stark. And obviously our generation, we, it's, it's so sad, we, uh, we've kind of forgotten about the, the dangers of socialism, the dangers of communism. Uh, what does it look like when a government has unchecked power, when, they, when they're uh, unaccountable to the populace? What does that look like? You know, I think a lot of uh, countries are probably finding out uh, now with, with some of the insipid forms of, of this government totalitarianism. But as Christians, how, how are we to think about this? Uh, it's not our job to necessarily lead revolutions or anything like that. But what we do need to be thinking about holistically is what are we going to do when the government tells us to act a certain way or do something else? Are we going to are we going to say, okay, we, we're going to have to shut down the church for X amount of uh, weeks or whatever? What kind of authority are we going to give to the government? Because it's not just our lives either. Uh, the society and the betterment of our children and grandchildren, things like that, are also at stake too. And so it is. It is a complicated question. And I haven't. I haven't even attempted to address any of these questions. My my main goal in this episode is just to really raise awareness of the historical Christian thinking on these issues, and try to apply some theological, uh, biblical thinking to to okay. What do the passages talk about? How can we apply these things? And I think overall, the biggest thing we see in Scripture is that is that Christians historically have been recognizing the dangers of government and the problems that government can have. And yes, we prefer a place where we can happily submit to governments in any and every scenario, but that has never been the Christian position to to just say, well, if the government says it, we're going to submit. It's never been the Christian situation or, or position. And so as Christians, we need to start thinking through these things if we haven't, because unless something crazy happens, Government's not going to take any steps backward from 2020, 2021. Um, Lord willing, and we can pray that way, that there would be a revival and there would be a return to the understanding of the rule of law over all men, uh, whether it be government or not. But we need to we need to be ready and, and think through these challenges uh, just in case we are faced with uh, within a matter of years, we could be faced with drastic scenarios given the fact that God has been completely removed from from society. And so hopefully we'll start these conversations if they haven't 
I know many people have been having these conversations already. And so I'm really thankful for those brothers and sisters. And I just encourage everybody to be having them, to be continuing them, think through it. It's, it's very important. Well, I hope it's been helpful. I know it's a bit of a heavy episode. It's a very long episode. But like I said, it's a very important topic. It's uh, very much on everyone's mind uh, these days. And so hopefully we'll continue these conversations in, in weeks to come. But uh, you can always look at the Shepherds Theological Seminary website at shepherds.edu if you're interested in looking at some of the spring classes. I'm also in charge of a community class which is offered to uh, individuals and churches on contemporary issues and the Bible. That's going to be January 10th through the 15th. So you can look at shepherds.edu for more information on that. We're going to cover issues like transgenderism, uh, critical race theory, homosexuality, and the like. So if you're interested, uh, go ahead and check that out. Otherwise, you can always reach out to me through the contact form on my website. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.